1: Give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including visits with Bob Levy. He's the chairman emeritus of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about executive overreach. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus Oz. terrific read. It is April the 19th, and on this day in 1995, a massive truck bomb exploded outside the Alfred P. Murrow uh, Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The building, uh, the blast collapsed the north face of the nine-story building, instantly killing more than 100 people and trapping dozens more in the rubble. Emergency crews raced to Oklahoma City from around the country, and when the rescue effort finally ended two weeks later, the death toll stood at 168 people killed, including 19 young children who were in the building for daycare at the time of the blast. On April the 21st, the massive manhunt for suspects in the worst terror attack ever committed on U.S. soil by American resulted in a capture of Timothy McVeigh <clears throat> a 27-year-old former U.S. Army soldier who matched an eyewitness description of a man seen at the scene of the crime. On the same day, Terry Nichols, an associate of McVeigh's, surrendered at Harrington, Kansas, after learning that the police were looking for him. Both men were found to be members of a radical right-wing survivalist group based in Michigan, and on April the 8th, Uh, John Fortier, who knew of McVeigh's plan to bomb the federal building, agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence. Two days later, a grand jury indicted McVeigh and Nichols on murder and conspiracy charges. While still in his teens, McVeigh acquired a penchant for guns and began honing survivalist skills he believed would be necessary in the event of a Cold War showdown with the Soviet Union. Lacking direction after high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and proved a, a disciplined and meticulous soldier. It was during this time that he befriended Terry Nichols, a a fellow 13 years his senior, who shared his survivalist interests. In early 1991, McVeigh served in the Persian Gulf War and was decorated with several medals for a brief combat mission. Despite these honors, he was discharged from the U.S. Army at the end of the year, one of many casualties of the U.S. military downsizing that came after collapse of the Soviet Union. Another result of the Cold War's end was that McVeigh shifted his ideology from a hatred of foreign communist governments to a suspicion of the U.S. federal government, especially as its new elected leader, Bill Clinton, had successfully campaigned for the presidency on a platform of gun control. The August 1992 shootout between federal agents and survivalist Randy Weaver at his cabin in Idaho, in which Weaver's wife and son were killed, followed by the April 19, 1993 Inferno near Waco, Texas, that killed some 80 Branch Davidians, deeply radicalized McVeigh and uh, Nichols and their associates, in early 1995, Nichols and McVeigh planned an attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City, which housed, among other federal agencies, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or ATF, the agency that had launched the initial raid on the Branch Davidian compound in 1993. On April 19, 1995, the two year anniversary of the disastrous end of the Waco standoff, McVeigh uh, parked a rider truck a rental shock loaded with a diesel fuel fertilizer bomb outside the Alfred Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and fled. Minutes later, the massive bomb exploded, killing 168 people. On June 2, 1997, McVeigh was convicted of 15 counts of murder and conspiracy and August 14, under the unanimous recommendation of the jury, was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $200,000 for failing to warn authorities about his uh, bombing plans. Terry Nichols was found guilty on one count of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter and was sentenced to life in prison. In December 2000, McVeigh asked a federal judge to stop all appeals of his convictions and to set a date for his execution. Federal Judge Rich uh, Match. Uh, granted the request, on June the 11th, 2001, McVeigh, 33, was died of a uh, lethal injection at the U.S. Penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. It was the first federal prison to be put to death since 1963. Sometimes it's just the thoughts that lead to such horrible actions. Uh, and uh, be- getting a belief system that, that in some way would support this kind of activity is incredible. <clears throat> we need to pay attention to our neighbors. Uline started operations Monday from its Florida Distribution Center in Naples. The new branch at uh, 3830 Uline Drive in Collier County is the 13th for Uline, a Wisconsin-based shipping supply specialist, which has nine locations in the United States, two in Canada, and two in Mexico. The first location in Florida is responsible for quickly packaging, sorting, and shipping items to customers in South and Central Florida. Uh, really, what you line, if you take a look at their website, they have uh, corrugated boxes, all kinds of supplies in order to pack stuff up and ship it safely. It's just unbelievable the size of this uh, operation. They have nine facilities. Until Monday, the responsibility for was handled by the Uline plant in Georgia. Some crew members from Uline are temporarily in Naples to assist in what is expected to be a seamless launch. New crew members experienced on-the-job training and team-building activities last week at the local plant, which completed construction earlier this year on 92 acres just west of Paradise Coast Sports Complex and future uh, Great Wolf Lodge in this uh, Citygate Commerce Park, east of Collier Boulevard and north of Interstate 75's Alligator Alley. The 915,000 square foot warehouse spans the length of more than 16 football fields with stock neatly stacked on 40 foot tall shelves. More than 40,000 items are available for next day shipping from 188 dock stores at the new plant. The Naples branch will hold 200 employees when fully staffed, about 50 employees transferred from other Uline plants, and about 150 will be hired locally. Local positions include roles in customer service, administration, human resources, information technology, mechanics, and custodial services. The new plant will operate at about 30% shipping capacity during its first week and will slowly ramp up until the plant is fully operational in about two or three months. This is a, a great story. It's just to show how uh, industry and uh, commerce is growing in the Naples area. It's pretty fantastic, in my opinion, and uh, bringing jobs. Of course, ULAND is bringing jobs right here uh, to the Paradise Coast. Well, Moms for Liberty uh, members from across the state rallied in the Florida Capitol on Tuesday for their second annual legislative days. Members watched debate on the House floor and met with their representatives to discuss The group's 2023 legislative agenda, uh, their 2023 legislative agenda includes supporting bills to expand parental rights in Education Act, which prohibits school teachers from teaching sexual orientation or gender identity from grades pre-K through 8th. Their agenda also includes supporting legislation to remove harmful materials from schools, school choice legislation, and more. Moms for Liberty was founded in 2021 by parents and former school board members, Tiffany Justice and Tina Deskovich, are the co-founders of the group. According to their website, Moms for Liberty is dedicated to fighting for the survival of America by unifying, educating, and empowering parents to defend their parental rights at all levels of government. The group has uh, created a massive grassroots network of parents across the country with 275 chapters across 45 states with more than 115,000 members. Pretty impressive since it was founded just uh, a couple years ago. Governor DeSantis is the first governor to ever be endorsed by the group. By the way, they were were heckled. Uh, They were screamed at. Uh, I'm not sure who that group was that did this, but they... Uh, were saying vicious things about these people, <clears throat> it's, uh, making com- comments that they want uh, genocide against uh, uh, kids. In any event, uh, Eric Donalds actually uh, videoed that, and it was uh, shown, you can find it on floridavoices.com Florida as well. Well, Buffalo Bill Safety DeMar Hamlin has been cleared for football activities over three months after suffering a cardiac arrest on the field during a game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Bill's general manager, Brandon Bean, made the announcement on Tuesday, telling reporters Hamlet is ready to make his return to the field. He's seen three additional specialists most recently on Friday, and they're all in agreement, Bean told reporters. And all three say that he's ready to get back on the field they're all in lockstep on what this was, and he has cleared to presume full activities, just like anyone else who's coming back from an injury or whatsoever. Well, I really wish him well, and amazing. His heart did stop on the field, and uh, to the people who just uh, revived him and brought him back, took him to the hospital, just very exciting that uh, he's alive today. Don't know what caused this. Uh, again, I always suspect for a young person who is in such great shape that perhaps the vaccine had something to do with it. I'm no medical doctor, but that's just my, my suspicion. Joe Biden was in Ireland last week for four days on what was essentially a family vacation with his son Hunter and his sister Valerie Biden-Jones. We ended up, uh, ended up paying for him to, to look into his genealogical background and embarrass us before the world with his problematic comments. But then uh, when he got back from the vacation on Saturday, Biden flew back to his beach house in Delaware for the weekend for still more leisure time. I guess the Irish trip was so strenuous that he needed to get yet another getaway. When he said he was going to Delaware, he managed to insult his interior secretary with a weird comment about her not being from anywhere. So on Monday, when you would you think he'd be ready to get back to work and well-rested? Well, not really. On Monday morning, his staff called an early lid at 9 a.m., meaning don't expect anything from him for the rest of the day. He's worn out already and this early on Monday. That's what we have in the office right now, someone who spends 40% of his time on vacation who can't even get up for work anymore. It must be tough recovering from vacations and hanging out at the beach. Joe Biden, our president, Joe Biden. Well, there's another Democrat who's got her eye on his job. Hillary Clinton has told a foreign media outlet that she could do the job in response to questions regarding Democrat President Joe Biden's age. In a new interview with Sky News during her trip to Northern Ireland, Hillary took multiple swipes at President Donald Trump before commenting about her ability to do Biden's job. As Slay News reported earlier, Clinton told the interviewer Beth Rigby, that Trump cannot be re-elected as president. She added, I feel I could do the job. I'm in my mid-70s. Hillary Clinton, just like a bad nickel, just keeps on showing up. Well, Fox News and Fox News Corporation on Tuesday settled a defamation suit, lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems for $787.5 million averting a high-profile trial, putting one of the world's top media companies in the crosshairs over its coverage of vote-rigging claims in the 2020 election. The settlement was announced by Fox, Dominion, and the judge in in the case in the 11th hour, with a 12-person jury selected on Tuesday morning, and the case poised to kick off with opening statements on Tuesday afternoon. Dominion had sought $1.6 billion in damages in the lawsuit filed in 2021 with Delaware Superior Court Judge Eric Davis presiding over the case in Wilmington. So uh, I, my opinion, Fox News wimped out. I think if they'd gone to trial, they would have had a great case uh, against Dominion. But, uh, well, they got the game chicken, and they decided to just go ahead and throw in the towel and settle for about half of the amount that they were being sued for. Unbelievable. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. (laughs)
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting
1: Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is B's Diner, providing great service reservations are needed check out the website at lulubees.com and stop by Lulubee's diner open from 8 a.m until 2 p.m seven days a week Lulubees diner in the green tree shopping center at the corner of Immokalee and airport pulling roads stop by Lulubees diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin good time
0: Forty-five, forty-one. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by InternationalHealthPlans.com. If you're planning on traveling abroad, you should know that most health insurance plans here in the United States don't cover international travel. You can do something about it. InternationalHealthPlans.com offers insurance at a great rate. You can travel worry-free. Go to InternationalHealthPlans.com. Uh, coming up, uh, we're going to be visiting with uh, Andrew Joppa, professor. Right now we have with us Bob Levy, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. Good morning, to Bob. Thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute.
3: We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C. and focused on free markets, private property, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web.
1: Thank you, Bob. Uh, great uh, website. I hope you'll visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. So last week we started a discussion about executive overreach, and I'd like to extend the conversation to treaty powers. the executive branch. Tell us about the recent treaty power case, Bond versus the United States.
3: It's a really interesting case, because ordinarily when you think of treaties, you think of treaties with foreign governments like Iran and Russia. Um, But the treaty power sometimes extends even to domestic power and can even implicate some key constitutional uh, provisions, including Uh, federalism, which is the division of power between the federal and state governments. So this Bond versus United States uh, actually relates to both the treaty power and uh, to federalism. So the background is that Carol Bond's husband impregnates Carol's best friend. Carol is understandably vexed. So she (laughs) uh, she spreads toxic chemicals on her friend's car and mailbox, causing minor burns when her friends touches those surfaces. Of course, that's against the law in every state. And ordinarily, Bond would have been charged and tried by the state of Pennsylvania where this occurred. But instead, she's charged under federal statute that implemented the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention. So this is under the Obama administration. It's not that Obama was especially interested in carol bond or really believed that she was involved in chemical warfare right what mattered to the administration was they saw an opportunity to expand federal authority even into state and local issues under the power in the constitution to make treaties that's why the case is interesting
1: man oh man that's scary stuff just expanding looking for her gaining power for the uh, federal government. Shouldn't the case have been handled by state courts, not federal courts?
3: Well, in the first part of the case, Bond challenged her indictment under the Tenth Amendment, which says that the feds have only those powers that are enumerated in the Constitution, and all other powers are reserved to the states. Uh And Bond claimed that her offense was a state crime and had nothing to do with the Chemical Weapons Treaty. But the Court of Appeals dismissed Bond's suit, and their logic was that the Tenth Amendment is designed to protect states, and since Bond was not a state, she had no standing to litigate the suit. So in a very important opinion, the Supreme Court rejected that logic 9-0. to And Justice Kennedy wrote, The 10th Amendment is not just about states' rights. It's about federalism, the purpose of which is to divide power between two sovereign authorities, federal and state, not only to protect the states, but, and this is Kennedy's language, to protect the liberty of all persons within a state. So Ms. Bonds did have standing to litigate the scope
1: of the treaty power. What an interesting narrative. So, <clears throat> so did the Supreme Court decide regarding the treaty power? I mean, did it affect the uh, understanding of the treaty power?
3: Well, that led, of course, to phase two of the case, the merits of the case, in which the court had to decide whether this chemical weapons convention reached ordinary domestic <clears throat> poisoning cases. And again, the court came down nine zero against President Obama. Chief Justice Roberts held that the treaty-based statute did not cover bond's conduct, which was simple assault, Mm -hmm. because states prosecute assaults unless Congress expressly extends the reach of the treaty power to cover a state crime, which it did not in this case. So technically, Roberts didn't reach the constitutional question. Suppose the statute had expressly stated that domestic poisoning was covered by the Chemical Weapons Convention, would that have been a permissible application of the president's power to make treaties? Or put differently, can a treaty give the president powers over and above those that are listed in the Constitution? We still don't know the answer to that question. So any attempt by a future president to use a treaty, to expend, expand government powers, let's say environmental controls yeah. or gun control regulation, that will no doubt result in a lot more litigation.
1: That is so fascinating, Bob. What issues are raised by the Iranian nuclear deal? Well, they
3: raise different issues. The obvious first question is to whether congressional consent was required. Obama said no. I think he was wrong about that. The framers did provide that some agreements could be entered into by the executive branch alone. Uh, for example, Article 1 of the Constitution uh, bars states from entering into any treaty or other agreement with a foreign power. And that language suggests that there are some other agreements that were contemplated uh, by the framers. But those executive agreements, other agreements, would have to fall within the president's constitutionally enumerated powers. And did President Obama have the power to negotiate a unilateral agreement that specifically covered, in that instance, nuclear arms with Iran? Some legal authorities believe that that nuclear negotiations come under the commander-in-chief power. Uh, I disagree with that. The president is indeed commander-in-chief of the armed forces. He is not commander-in-chief of the entire nation. Uh, And we are not at war with Iran. And there were no troops at the time uh, to command. So I don't believe it would come under the commander-in-chief power.
1: That is so fascinating. But it just illustrates how uh, people just try to expand and grab power in any way they can. So what about the president's inherent power over foreign affairs?
3: Well, on that point, I would concur with the president's claim. But Congress also plays a role. The president's power, he has that power in the Constitution, but it isn't exclusive. There's a reason that the framers required that the Senate consent to treaties. And when the subject matter of an agreement, like the Iran nuclear agreement, has a vital impact on public policy, I think it's pretty clear that the framers, who were deeply concerned about separation of powers, checks and balances, the framers meant for those very important agreements to be regarded as treaties and not mere executive agreements. And a nuclear pact with Iran, obviously, would rise to that level.
1: Yeah. So then, just where does this leave us? I mean, what's the scope of the treaty power?
3: Well, first, I think the scope is imprecise. Second, uh, the president can enter into some agreements without the consent of Congress. Uh, But those agreements, uh, even though they may be politically binding, they're not legally binding. And finally, I think the nuclear agreement with Iran is plainly a treaty, not another executive agreement that should have been approved uh, by two-thirds of the Senate. And, of course, it was not. So whatever you think about the merits of our arrangement with Iran, which now, of course, has been abrogated, uh, whatever you think about the merits, I think procedurally that treaty uh, would not have been legally binding because the Senate never did consent to it.
1: So fascinating. Bob Levy, again, Chairman Emeritus of the Cato Institute. C-A-T-O dot org is the website. I hope you'll check it out. Bob, really appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, coming up, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, changing lives through exceptional theater experiences. They just do a terrific job. You can get tickets and find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. I always appreciate our Wednesday morning visits. Starting off with some good news, typically. Do you have some good news for us?
2: I, I have, uh, I think, several good news stories. The first is, I guess, a, an example of Schadenfreude, the, the German word for experiencing the pleasure with somebody else's pain, and that's that Anheuser-Busch has lost $5 billion in value uh, since the Mulvaney partnership. Now, yeah. Uh, again, I think some of these stories are only important by implication, and this is a good news story in the sense that uh, I think a corporation is finally feeling a uh, a major pain because of a uh, move towards uh, inappropriate uh, equity uh, movement, uh, woke movement, uh, that totally... Uh, uh, just ignores their existing market. So I think that's a good news story because it may, it may portend other things in terms of how woke how corporations and ESG investment goes from this point forward. Um there's also a good news story I think once again in the delaying of a confirmation on the on uh, Biden's nominee for Secretary of Labor Julie Sue. Now, here's a woman that is there for only one reason uh, based basically an equity appointment uh that's being resisted. Uh she in California oversaw the largest instance of taxpayer funded fraud in California history, approximately 40 billion dollars. Mm. Uh so again, I I don't uh, want to uh, suggest that uh, that everybody should be uh, rejected because of one um, one major problem in their background. But in her case, she she brings very little to the table, and she has this large uh, large taxpayer funded fraud uh, circumstance in her background, and yet Biden continues to push. Uh, to push forward with her uh, potential nomination. It's being pushed back. I think uh, Manchin is the the latest to say that he will uh, probably not support her nomination.
1: So interesting. About about Anheuser-Busch, though, they came out with a new commercial, and it's got the Clydesdale on it, and it's just all the appeals to America and, uh, you know, the, the patriotism theme, but uh, I just don't think it's going to wash right now. He's really... <laughs> Anheuser-Busch is really... Uh, in their own nest. I, I don't think they're going to be able to come back from this.
2: I, I think they're, they're recognizing that it's, it's difficult for them to uh, escape from this because, uh, again, there's some things you can't retreat from. So once the, once the deed is done, so to speak, Bob, yeah. then uh, uh, apologies and just just don't matter from that point forward. Look, I don't want to see the company go out of business, but I think we're looking at a, uh, a serious market deflection uh, in the value of their stock. And I think that uh, anheuser Bush, I believe, learned a lesson, and I think a lot of other companies are looking at this, and hopefully they're learning the same lesson.
1: Well, to your point, I mean, I would hope that companies right now are looking at the situation saying, you know, uh, maybe we just to stay pure vanilla and stay with our current theme and with our mission and let's forget all the woke stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't think anybody is, uh, you know, on, uh, on the right, in, in, uh, as I am basically, uh, is demanding that these companies do what I want them to do. But All I right. think we can at least offer pushback uh, when they're doing something overtly uh, damaging to, to their market. And uh, when that market includes exclusively at this point, uh, as they would have it in their marketing vice president's words, uh, the, the frat, the detached, uh, unaware of frat people. Yeah, so to to classify their market as that, uh, I think is never going to be something that uh, they can retreat from, Bob.
1: Absolutely. Any other good news, Andy? Uh,
2: there's a, a good story coming out of Cornell. Now, the president of Cornell is uh, Martha Pollack, now, Cornell, historically up in Ithaca, New York, is uh, certainly historically one of the more woke colleges in the in the Ivy League uh, grouping of colleges. Uh, but she has really come out very strongly in the uh, in the uh, protection of free speech, including the uh, requirement that students and faculty must explore this issue uh, and must explore the issues of of, of the uh, freedom of speech in the. Uh, in the campus, and with all invited guests. So uh, I think that uh, Pollock is, I think, leading the way for college presidents to uh, not, again, promote the uh, positions of the conservative right, yeah. but to at least uh, suggest that a college, if any place in this country, should be uh, a place where the free expression of ideas should take place. So I, I think that the Cornell president is, is leading that. Uh, and again, once again, I hope that's an indicator that this may be, may be picked up by by other college presidents.
1: Bob, no question. I mean, if you think about the history of the ACLU it would always come to the protection of uh, whatever anybody would say, uh, but now well, you know on college, college, college your, uh college campuses, uh, you know, speech is so limited, and you have to have the approval of the student body to express it. It's it's almost like anarchy. It's like uh, it's, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for, like like uh, Italy at the time of Mussolini? Fascism. Fascism, exactly. Thank you.
2: You know, I, I think the important part of what Pollock is doing is weaving the student body and the faculty into the necessity of, let's call it, uh, being trained in, in the... Uh, uh, appropriateness and necessity of a freedom of speech. In her specific case, it's the college campus, but her, her position is a much wider position, that it's the essential ingredient in democracy. Uh, and I think there's very little uh, pushback that can be offered for that kind of uh, uh, statement. Uh, so I think it's an important position that Pollock is taking, and uh, uh, I think it's a, perhaps a risky position for her at uh, at cornell, and let's hope once again that these things become uh, indicators of of what may lie ahead in in other environments Bob
1: yeah you'd expect and, and hope that uh, college students would have differences of opinion and be able to debate them and discuss them intelligently as opposed to create. Uh, barriers to the discussion, which is what's going on right now, it's just totally incredible.
2: Well, I, I would mention, uh, in my rare occasions teaching online now, uh, that uh, when I've ventured into unwoke waters, that uh, it is it has created uh, heat in my in my online classes that that has been challenging to me, Bob. So uh, it, I'm not saying all my students. By the way, there are many that are that are fully aware of of what the, the uh, the exchange of ideas should mean. On the other hand, there are some that are that are triggered, as that's the word used by these people, triggered, uh, that these uh, concepts that are not woke, uh, trigger them into emotional breakdowns. So it's, it's a dangerous situation for faculty. Uh, even if they they do want to push back against these things, they, they feel their their livelihood is on the line, and, and they, they don't want to go through the heat that they may have to experience if they, uh, if they break the codes that are imposed on them.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. You know, my cynical self, I sit here to wonder perhaps how students use this stuff as a way to change the scent with the professor in order to be, not be held accountable for learning the learning the curriculum and learning the information in the course so I don't know if that's ever occurred to you.
2: Well, it, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I mentioned to you ChatGPT with the ability of that uh, artificial intelligence form to write term papers. And I, I think I pretty well have established that several of my students use that almost as the exclusive method for submitting a midterm paper in my classes. Wow. Now, rather than challenging them directly, I just submitted a complete analysis of ChatGPT and its ability to do that citing several of the things that they brought up in their papers as, as frames of reference. So I, I'm trying to do, do what I can without putting myself at risk because I, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Uh, on the other hand, I, I feel rather cowardly for for not being more aggressive uh, as I would have been in the classroom 20 years ago,
1: Bob. Well, that's a shot across the bow, so good for you, Andy. All right, we need to take a little break. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
1: Thank you.
0: Bob Hartman show. And now here's your host, Bob Hartman.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual responsibility, personal responsibility, individual liberty, limited government and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Jopper, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here, Bob. So, Andy, uh, any more good news?
2: Uh, this is a good news story of a sort, but uh, I'm, I'm not, let, let's, just, let's just talk about it as a story. The United Nations came out with another dire uh, uh. report on the implication of climate change. Uh, they said we, are, we perhaps have reached the point where we're turning back <clears throat> is impossible. Uh, of course, they made the same report 34 years ago. The IPCC has been wrong consistently uh, in, their, in their dire predictions about humanity's fate Um, So I just want to cite a recent uh, essay written by John Stossel and what he said. So just let me... Refer to this real quickly. Uh, Stossel said before fossil fuels, life expectancy was below 30. Income was basically non existent. The population was stagnant because people had such a high death rate. The basic reason is that nature is not a very livable place for human beings until the advent of fossil fuels. That's the only reason we experience the planet as livable. So those kind of comments are are extremely accurate, extremely important uh, to understand. As we push more and more away from uh, fossil fuels, we are risking the very element of civilization itself. It puts us in far greater risk than any implication uh, from climate change can possibly do. It takes us back let me let me just show you uh, read to you some of the uh, the comments made in the early days of the uh, of the global warming controversy. Um, one comment made by environmentalists furthermore, the whole economy of industrial affluence and poverty must give way to hunter gatherer way of life, which is the only Com- uh, economy compatible uh, with a healthy land. Uh, another by Maurice Strong, who was head of the uh, Earth Summit in 1992, said, isn't the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilization collapse? Isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? I only bring up those, those comments to, uh, to indicate to your audience that it is positions like this that drove 30 years ago the very development of global warming at that point now leading into climate change. These were misogynists. These are people that regarded human beings and civilization and capitalism and uh, progress and technology as being detrimental uh, to the quality, not of human life, because they didn't care much about human life, but to the the, the, uh, well-being of the planet. And so we have this this commitment they were making, not to humanity, uh, but to the well-being of the planet. And they were wrong and have been wrong in almost every prediction uh, ever since, Bob.
1: You know, I think that we should decouple the whole notion. We have some concerns, let's say, about uh, uh, global warming. We have some concerns about... Uh, rising waters and, and oceans and so forth, we, 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 and those are rightful concerns. But to blame it on carbon dioxide is just the, the premise is absolutely false. We've had periods in the globe where there's been higher levels of carbon dioxide by m- multiples uh, that we have today, and the, the only effect of that is to make the, the Earth more lush and green so uh, we're going down a false, false road. This is going to lead to just total destruction of our civilization and our uh, economic well-being.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the most negative turning points was when the EPA defined carbon dioxide as an atmospheric pollutant. But as you're describing, you're talking about the the, the critical uh, atmospheric uh, gaseous element. Uh, to sustain life, it is carbon dioxide that not only feeds the, uh, the the vegetation on the planet but also ultimately results in the production of oxygen right. so here you have this this essential commodity that is was declared uh, as a pollutant, and that was not necessarily supported by the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court said that the EPA has the right to make that regulation and that ruling, which is uh, absolutely patently absurd, Bob. It
1: is absurd, and uh, again, you're referring to photosynthesis. Uh, plants take in the carbon dioxide, they uh, ex- their exhaustion happens to be oxygen, and that's just the wonderful cycle of life that we have here on planet Earth. And uh, t- it's <laughs> to be promoting electric cars and all this nonsense, it just doesn't make any sense.
2: Well, I, I think that, you know, that that makes <coughs> carbon dioxide perhaps the single most important uh, uh, commodity on the planet, since it is the source of producing oxygen itself, so... Uh, We know without oxygen, I don't have to go into this, the the critical value and importance of oxygen to life. We know that. Uh, So we know that carbon dioxide is essential for its formation. So, you know, without being redundant in this discussion, but I think it may be necessary uh, if there are younger uh, people in your audience to understand the critical importance of carbon dioxide, Bob. So let's hope we've done something in that direction.
1: All right. So uh, any other good news?
2: Um uh, no that's about the all the all the good news I can possibly uh, stand today Bob.
1: Well uh, I hear some from the UN. Did you hear that the UN is now uh, considering uh that uh taking a new position on uh pedophiles on basically saying adult uh, relationships sexual relationships with children and adults I mean it's just unbelievable. Just,
2: just- position taken in the, uh, in the UN Committee on in this area uh, where they said that uh, children have, have the ability to make decisions of that sort by themselves they They didn't limit it to uh, like uh, older adolescents sixteen seventeen year olds but uh, basically positioned it for anybody under eighteen. Uh, they didn't specifically uh, state that but but essentially that is certainly a drawn implication from what they said uh, it should provide a field day of cover. Uh, for pedophiles, and uh, I I just do not understand this. I think one of the things that's been suggested causing that is that uh, this is a way of uh, firming up the right of the child to uh, go through transition uh, from uh, male to female, female to male, based yeah. on their own uh, their own okay, without the parental involvement. Yeah. I think that that may be what the uh, U.N. ruling is really all about, Bob.
1: That's so interesting. Well, in my opinion, it's time to defund the U.N. and throw them out of the United States. <laughs> and I'm not saying we should abolish the U.N., but I am saying we shouldn't have anything to do financially in supporting uh, these terrible uh, efforts that they have
2: i i think perhaps it, it can't be done away with but on the other hand it must be reformed i would say on balance at this point the united nations uh in its processes is causing perhaps we, we could weigh more damage than benefit from the united nations so i i guess i would suggest it needs to be reformed it's uh, it's consistent uh um attacks on Israel and uh, for their human rights violations. In fact, Bob, as best I remember it, uh, the United Nations in the last uh, 20 years, I'm I'm not sure the time frame, uh, has uh, issued more human rights violations against Israel than against all other countries in the world combined. So that kind of process see, where you're attacking uh, one of the only true democracies in the Middle East, perhaps the only true democracy, uh, sh- is certainly symptomatic of, of the problems fa-
1: that are being faced in the United Nations. Bob. Absolutely, Andy. We need to take another break. Can you stick around? I'll be here, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
0: Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Hartman Broadcasting Network.
1: You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go.
0: Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking uh, networking platform. You can find out more by visiting choicesocial.us. Also brought to you by the Foundation for Government Accountability. I hope you'll visit the website, thefga.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Good to be here, Bob.
1: Thank you, Andy. So uh, let's talk a little bit about what's the uh, damage that the New York Times has done, basically, to our culture and society. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I, I certainly agree with that. You know, I just published an essay uh, documenting the damage of the New York <clears throat> Times. Uh, it is considered, still considered to be the paper of record, and it's still <clears throat> probably the single most influential media source in the world. Uh, And I think, therefore, it has to be discussed in terms of its history and uh, what its impact has been. If we look at a quotation made by Arthur Hayes Hayes Sulzberger, who was publisher of the Times from 1935 to 61, he wrote, A man's judgment cannot be better than the information on which he has based it. Give him no news or present him only with distorted and incomplete data, with ignorant, sloppy, or biased reporting, with propaganda and deliberate falsehoods and you destroy his whole reasoning process and make him something less than a man. Uh, Those are great words, wonderful words. It's very unfortunate that the New York Times probably has violated those words more than any other single media source. Uh, As I did uh, a lot of research on this, I I made the case that almost every major negative event worldwide in the last hundred years has either been caused by or seriously negatively influenced by the writings of the New York Times, so I I have a few things I'll talk about specifically that I'll I'll bring up in regards to what I just said. But you have any comments about Uh, that? I do. Yeah,
1: I I would uh, also. The words that you just read pretty much describe the landscape right now of the news. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that if uh, I listen to what somebody believes and what their thoughts are around the the world situation, I can pretty much identify pretty closely what news outlets they're focused on and what they listen to or, or watch. Uh, And it's just not true with the New York Times, but there's so much false information coming out. uh, And I'm going to suggest not just liberal, but also conservative outlets as well.
2: Well, you know, look there uh, there's a, um, a significant case can be made for example even in uh, more recent American history that the uh the Times initiated New York Times initiating the the 1619 project uh, that is that is their baby. Yep. Uh, they have been the author of that. I mean, and they're not the listed author, but certainly they have been the uh, the source of uh, contamination of the 1619 project. That is a New York Times project which <clears throat> A uh, Countless number of historians have dismissed as being factually and historically absolutely absurd, right. and yet the New York Times has made no attempt—excuse <clears throat> me on this— <clears throat> To to diminish the impact of of that process, right. but if we go back into the New York Times history, uh, back in the in the mid '30s, when uh, when Salzberger was first issuing that quotation that I gave, the New York Times was essentially providing cover, basically cover for Nazi Germany uh, through their two reporters on the scene, uh, Otto Tos- Toleschloss and um, Frederick Birchall were both there, both being apologists for Nazi Germany. By doing so, that gave uh, Nazi Germany a a certain uh, safety uh, period in which they could move forward uh, more strongly in their activities. There's no doubt. That the reporting of the Times gave Nazi Germany that cover. It was the same thing with Walter Durante, uh, who was the the Times reporter covering the Soviet Union, and uh, Walter Durante totally uh, ignored or poo pooed the, uh, the the uh, the Holocaust that was taking place. This is not the Jewish Holocaust, but the 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 Ukrainian Holocaust, where it's estimated anywhere from two to four million uh, uh, Ukrainians were starved to death. <clears throat> by the policies of Stalin, and yet Durante totally ignored that or just minimized the implication of that. We could see that the New York Times took a, a rather insignificant figure, Fidel Castro, who with a small band of men was hiding in the mountains of Cuba at that point, and made him in, into a romantic hero that eventually led to the, uh, to the overthrow of Batista, who was a dictator certainly, but... But Cuba was progressing under Batista. once the, the communist regime of uh, Castro took over. Uh, we know that the, there was a total suppression of economic well-being, not to even consider the number of executions uh, that were being committed. The, the rise of Castro was almost entirely uh, a, an event of the New York Times. In addition, the, uh, the reporting of David Halberstrom in, in Vietnam uh, about the corruption of the Diem regime. And the promoting of that, totally false in, in all of its particulars, eventually led to the assassination of D.M., which led more so than anything else uh, to the horrors that we saw of the Vietnam War from 1965 uh, through our eventually withdrawal. Uh, so you know, there are so many. Uh, I could just cite the, uh, the failure to report the Holocaust, the Jewish Holocaust, during World War II. They buried it uh, on their inner pages consistently. So there's a long history of yeah. the New York Times having been wrong. Uh, just wrong. Uh, j- certainly that can, point could be made without uh, dis- dispute, but I think the point could be made that they were willfully wrong. They knowingly were wrong about the positions they took uh, and the actions that they, uh, that they took in regards to critical issues for the world. And again, I'll get back to the, the, the basic point that I think could be justified, is that the New York Times has directly or indirectly Contributed to every major negative event over the last hundred years, Bob.
1: So, uh, the implication is that in, in what you're saying is that somehow the institution, in this case the New York Times, drove the behavior or directed the behavior of the reporters to make these types of reports. I just wonder about uh, the motivation of the reporters themselves. They're basically on assignment, they're uh, away from the United States, and yet they're sending back this false information. What what do you well, think both, the motivations? Uh,
2: Duranty and Toller uh, Schles and, and uh, <coughs> virtual virtual and Toller Schlesa were living the high life under under uh, Nazi sponsorship, ah. you could say, uh, in uh, in Germany at that point. The same thing with Duranty. Durante was sort of a fop. And he was living the good life in, in Moscow during his, his reporting period. So I think that to sustain their lifestyle, uh-huh. uh, not just their lives, because that wasn't, in, uh, that wasn't at risk, but to sustain their lifestyles, I think they, they felt it was necessary to do this uh, clearly uh, distorted reporting, Bob.
1: They were bought lot, Much like the uh, politicians today in the United States. Uh, uh,
2: exactly like yeah.
1: <laughs> what, Exactly like. What a that. shame. Andy, I just always appreciate your commentary here on the show so much. You just, uh, I think, bring a lot of things to life and give us all things to think about in terms of the issues of the day. I really appreciate your commentary here on the show. I
2: wish we had more time, Bob. I really do.
1: I do as well. Thank you so much, Andy. Take care, Bob. You as well. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to remind you to enjoy Bee's Diner for dinner. That's Wednesday through Saturday nights, 4 to 8 p.m. Great menu, terrific food. I had the, uh, the uh, grouper last time, and it was just absolutely fabulous. So if you're looking for an informal dinner, I'm going to recommend Bee's Diner. Not only great breakfast and lunch, but also great dinner at Bee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center. Hope you're And tomorrow. We're going to visit with Keith Flaw, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. Michael Cannon is director of health policy studies at the Cato Institute. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And also Bill Barnett, former mayor of Naples, will bring us up to date on what's happening here locally. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.